the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm, who is looking very hoodie today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every day. Today and every day. Well, I, don't normally, like I don't normally do the show in a hat. Today felt like a hat day oh. with the cold and the snowy morning. Or, yeah, interesting. Know, that was yesterday that morning, was but there's yesterday, still but... snow out. <laughs> It's all that stuff. It's all, all that, that stuff. stuff and in I'm the losing world. my mind, forgetting which days in the morning. I mean, join the party, my yeah. friend. So I like to. Er, was it earlier where you were like, "Oh, you know, you said earlier in the show." I'm like, "No, like last segment, I said that." Uh, yeah. We're just losing our minds, man. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> You're not wrong. Anywho, you can find us if you'd like. After that rousing introduction, <laughs> on Facebook. maybe listen to these two guys who claim to be losing their yeah, minds. Right, just watch them. Watch their steadily declining mental stability. Uh, <laughs> Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show on Twitter at Common Good Talk eleven sixty Hope dot com slash the Common Good wherever it is you get your podcast. A couple of people have asked me by the way, like how do I know which one is you? There's a couple of different podcasts called the Common Good. Ours has our dumb faces on it. Yes, it and does. there's like a green little logo, and they are the bottom. Dumb. Super dumb, but. We're on posters now, which is super strange. Do you ever, <laughs> do you ever like see the banner thing at an event? You're like, hi. Uh, it is weird to see yes, your face that big. Yes, it's be, I'm sure it'll happen to be the Lyft conference this weekend. <laughs> oh, that's right. Do I have to interact with the sign of us? I actually think we have to stand next to it. And like, I think our no. job is just to sit there and look like we do in there. And that's the move. <laughs> so, so we'll just mannequin the whole, like, wait a minute. Are these actually them? Anywho, so did we do this? Last, it must have been last week. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, time is flying. So John Christ. Yeah. We talked uh, at length the Charisma article in particular, which we didn't get into uh, in detail, but it's worth reading in detail. Uh, he has canceled his tour in light of some some pretty condemning sexual misconduct allegations. And now it seems like there's all these other uh, Twitter rants and people yep. kind of coming out with their own confessions and all these other stories. And unfortunately, there are other people saying, yeah, we've been saying this for years. That was the hard part that of the, the read. part that breaks my heart. They're like, go back to my tweet in 2014. Yes. We've been saying this. That stuff breaks my heart. Another friend of mine actually weighed in on Sunday and he was like, why do I hear so few Christian leaders talking about this? Which is a whole other thing that is super frustrating. And I think it's worth saying into a microphone that we have to talk about this. I, mm-hmm. I get that it's uncomfortable and I get that we love good comedy and good art. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes I think if we like someone's craft, yeah. we're much less likely to actually say, hey, this is wrong. This is bad. And I think people are wrestling. And I, I've actually been surprised by this wrestle. We talked about this last week. I think people are there are some people wrestling with like, yeah, this would obviously be wrong if he was a pastor or a, I'm using air quotes. You can't see this on the radio. A church leader. I think you right. did a good job talking about how he is a leader. But like I've heard multiple people be like, he's he's a comedian. 
like I know he's a Christian comedian and this is bad for the uh, the Christian part of his brand. But uh, is it something that we should be outraged to the level we are when a pastor does this? And I've been banging the drum going, absolutely, yes. Yeah. But I've actually been surprised by the people who've been raising that at all. Oh, okay. What I find frustrating, and we talked about this last week, too, is the amount of people I've heard say, hey, who among us hasn't sinned? We Mm -hmm. all make mistakes. This is just happening under a microphone. And I'll say it again. Um, Influence is power. And power used to get what you want, sexual otherwise, is mm-hmm. manipulation. It's exploitative, mm-hmm. and we have to start talking about it as such, and not just, ah, we all sin, we all screw up. It, it is predatory and problematic at so many levels, and I, I would call on more Christian leaders to, to speak up and say, we condemn this, this isn't good. Yeah. So the story continues because uh, it sounds like Netflix has pulled his special that was supposed to come out. It sounds like his book is potentially on pause. Yeah. It was supposed to uh, come out, I think, in March. And so we're seeing some of these organizations now kind of respond and turn in light of these allegations. And I have no idea what those inner workings look like. Is there a I mean, I'm sure they have a think tank or some sort of board that's kind of all right. We got to at least hit pause until we, you know, get see how the chips fall. I'm curious if you're surprised by these responses from Netflix and the and the publishers that saying, hey, we we don't want to be a part of that. Or is that is even some of that ironic to your point that there are other things on Netflix that literally glorify the kinds of things that right. he's being condemned for. Like, is there a trickiness in there for you at all? I think this is a money call because I think that they know okay. that John Christ's uh, primary audience, we highlighted last week, not his only audience, but his primary audience are going to be Christians. Like he is the Christ, the preeminent Christian comedian. And so I think they're doing some metrics here that says we need to hold this until mm. this is blown over so that the people who won't listen to him now will listen to him later. OK, maybe it turns into a restoration tour of a some sort, you know, mm. a uh, an apology tour. But I think Netflix is not making this, in my opinion, on a principled stand. I would guess they're making this on a financial stand. Oh, that, interesting that the people who would have listened to him are now it's too hot right now. It's too hot. So. We, we not got, in a good way. No, not in a good way. So we got to let this die down because no, who's some of these people aren't going to buy the book. They're not going to buy the Netflix special. Mm. Let's wait. And hopefully they'll come a day later on when they will. Interesting. Uh, and and so my guess is that's what's going on there. And I'd I'd be interested if people. I don't know. Like, uh, is this something would you have purchased his Netflix special before? Uh, I don't. You don't purchase specials. I mean, it's just part of on, Netflix. It's just I'm on so, the platform. I'm yeah. so old, man. <laughs> I was. So I didn't want to say it. I thank would, you. But then you asked me, and now I have to. Would you be buying them from the internet? <laughs> would you have watched it before? And does anything what happened in the last week change whether you would have watched it? I'm wondering about yes dynamics. And, yes and yes. Okay. Yep. Hundred percent. Um, and so I think that's why they're pulling it. That makes sense. Yep. I wonder if I'm the target demographic. Why do you think that the Christian leadership in general seems to have? still be pretty quiet about it. Like, is there, to me, some of what feels like low-hanging opportunities for Christian leaders to say, hey, um, we want to be on the front lines of pointing things out in the world that are toxic and broken and wrong and saying, that's not okay, that's not good, and not saying things like, hey, let's not cast stones. I'm not saying we need to shoot our own. I'm saying we need to call out sin for what it is, especially when implemented by people of authority and influence. And when we don't, doesn't it kind of just make, I feel like that's sometimes what the non-Christian community finds so cringeworthy. Like this one's 
an underhand lob. This is easy. Just condemn this. Say yep. that it's it's predatory, it's exploitative, and that you you want no part of that. And, mm-hmm. and I know that some people are, but why? Like, why does it still feel like generally so quiet? Does it though? I don't know. I'm trying to think it if does I feel for me, like. I guess. Okay, I actually don't. I don't have any way to know that. I, I've seen people speaking out, but sometimes, like we've said before, you and I are in a little bit of an echo chamber where, where yeah. like we get a lot of the people's feedback in general. Uh, I do think if where there's been quietness, I think people don't know what to do with the fact that he's an entertainer mm. and uh, they don't want to ascribe to him some sort of authority that I think we think he has. And um, I think that I think it's probably that. Now, interestingly, some people who've been named in the article as to kind of having known it uh, have yet to respond. And I found that interesting as well. But uh, I think it comes down to that. I think people are wrestling with. It's it's really low hanging fruit when it's a pastor uh, because th- that authority is pretty black and white or mm. denominational leader or whatever else entertainer you know Christian rock band Christian singer yeah right. comedian I don't think people really know what to do with that isn't that weird though that we it don't see weird. the clear delineation with that I, I think you're right I think authority and hierarchy feels different in those realms but I don't actually know that it is yeah it 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 does feel weird and it'll be interesting man I don't know. Well, I guess when he comes back, people are going to go and they're going to listen. But then again, I almost said comes back if he comes back. But then again, when a lot of these pastors come back, people go to their churches. So maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Well, and again, our heart legitimately breaks for every element of this. And we pray for contrition, repentance, restitution. I mean that. But that stuff takes time, though. And I I think you're spot on when money is a great motivator. Sometimes we like to microwave healing. Mm. And that just is not it's not okay. And Christians, we can do better. And I think we need to. That's a great point. Well, coming up next. Uh, I want to talk about this article that my friend Dan tweeted. It's nine best practices for leading multi-generational worship. If you care at all about multi-generational ministry, uh, I think this article is brilliant. You're not going to miss it. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. The Internet, by the way, is birthdays today. Is that a true statement? It is not true. No, it's okay. false. I'm sorry. I just wanted to see if I could bait you. You you can't. You say stuff with just this deadpan look where you're like, oh, must be true. <laughs> Happy birthday, internet. <laughs> Do I have a believable face? Well, in those moments, you there's very what little you know, like... those moments? What does that mean? Just to in general. But I mean, when you do those specifically, mm. it's just kind of like, oh, it's the internet's birthday. Was it the specificity? You're like, why would he lie about that? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Happy. Well, thank you, Al Gore. Yeah. Oh, boy. No. Not Al Gore. Uh, no. He didn't, he didn't make the internet? Have we you ever should... seen the Today Show uh, segment from 1994 that went all around the internet? Oh, it was on a commercial not too long ago. Really? About Katie the internet? Katie Couric and Brian Gumbel and somebody else discussing, trying to, it was 1994. Wow. And so they did a segment about the internet. Yeah. And they were trying, they, they were like, they couldn't understand it. It was really fascinating. That doesn't feel that long ago. Nope, 1994. <sighs> That's great. I don't, I'm going to go find that now. Yeah. All right. So uh, a good buddy of mine, we not only were roommates in college, we've played in three bands together. Just one of my one of my favorite dudes on planet Earth. His name is Dan Lugo. He's a really, really great worship pastor, but also someone who just thinks deeply about worship. He's a great follow on Twitter. Uh, I think his Twitter handle now is like newish worship pastor or something like that. <laughs> Used to be new and then he and I both got old. But anyway, I read the stuff that he shares and likes and retweets just because I think that he's got an incredible perspective. He's a practitioner, but he also thinks like a theologian. Yep. And I love that merging of like not just an ivory tower somewhere. He's actually living it out. Yep. But 
interested in thinking more deeply about the things that we do week in and week out. So he shared this article, nine best practices for leading multi-generational worship. I'm going to tell you quickly, the reason I like even that title is because I feel like the vast majority of these types of articles I read say nine tips for reaching millennials. Oh yeah. And it feels so lopsided. Like we just, what can we do to reach the young people? Which by the way, millennials are now like turning 40. So Gen Z and beyond. But this is really kind of framed around, multi-generational worship, which I think is a really important conversation and one that maybe not enough churches are having. It begins by saying, if you lead worship in a local church, there's a good chance it's multi-generational. Unless you've specifically planted a young adult church or leading a youth movement, you have middle schoolers to great-grandparents in your church gathering to sing today. Sound like fun? It's actually one of the most challenging aspects of local church, worship ministry. Worship wars, too many preferences. If our goal is to make everyone happy, it's an impossible task. It takes big vision. It takes collaboration to have an expansive view of the kingdom that is more than sounding cool and singing popular songs. So here are the nine best practices. I'll let you kick them off because I think all nine of them are really great, really thoughtful, and really helpful. Yeah, number one's become an arranger. You can get away with modern aggressive songs as long as it's positioned well in a set. Oftentimes, a worship set contains three songs that are all driving, rhythmic, and loud. Mm -hmm. You're not helping yourself with that. Arrange the set to contain ups and downs, high energy and space. Grow in your skill as an architect uh, the whole worship experience. That's really good. Number two, focus on the voice of the people. Don't be so concerned with how you and your band sound. Place emphasis on the corporate singing of God's people. No matter the set, I always, every single time, utilize voice-only moments for people to sing. Even using drum-only choruses to encourage the church to rise up is so helpful. How you lead is way more important than what you lead. Uh, number three, Learn to love old and new. The church is both old and current. Right. We stand on the shoulders of saints who have gone before. Our worship liturgy should include new and old expressions. If you don't love that, learn to love it. It's important. Number four, connect off stage. Rather than just hanging out with your band backstage, go start a conversation with the old ladies in the back row. Mm. Look them in the eye. Pray with them. Also, hang around youth. Don't be shy. Force yourself into situations where you have to talk and interact with all generations. Make a connection off stage, mm. which seems obvious, but is uh, is definitely a rarity. Yeah, absolutely. Number five, get creative. Creativity and relevancy doesn't have to be edgy and loud. If you're wanting to shake up your sound, Hillsong Young and Free isn't the only option. That's right. Do a whole set with cello and drum pads. Try three acoustic guitars and no electric. Use more piano. Sing without your acoustic guitar. Bring a vibraphone. On, I have no idea what that is. A I'll vibraphone on stage with an electric guitar playing swells. Like, I could not define most of that sentence, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> no approach is sacred. Sacred. Get creative. I love it. Number six. This one maybe seems obvious. Love Jesus. Nothing <laughs> connects the generations like a love for Jesus. This can't be overstated. They may not love your music, but they will follow your pursuit of of God, provided it is genuine and real. Make that the center of all you do, a wild pursuit of his presence. That one maybe should have been number one. Yeah, number seven, cast a big vision. Multi-generational worship isn't simply a battle between loud and soft music or new and old songs. It's a leadership problem. It takes a leader who believes in the multi-generational church deep in their bones, have conversations with people, cast vision with the platform, Paint a compelling picture for the church you'd like to see and be ready to fight for it. That's so good. Number eight, collaborate with your lead pastor. It's possible that no one knows multi-generational worship like your lead pastor. They may not be a musician or have experience leading worship, but they know their people. Be proactive about starting conversations about how you can serve the congregation better in worship. And the number nine, last one for him in his list, 
Uh, this is a guy by the name of right David Santa Stephen. Santi Stephen. It's a great last name. I think it's pronounced Hardcastle. <laughs> Ooh, going back to yesterday's show. Well, yesterday's God. show. Just trying to keep it. Number keep nine. It See, if you want to know the inside jokes, you got to listen to the shows. That's a weird tease. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Number nine. Look at the big picture. <laughs> Most worship leaders think in terms of songs. One fast song, two slow uh-huh. songs. Rather than just thinking in terms of the songs you're going to sing, consider the wider story of the gospel. Think in terms of an immersive experience in the presence of God. This includes songs, but can also include scripture, exhortation, spoken words, videos, and other creative elements. That's so good. All right. So here's the question that I want to lay on you, because you've mentioned numerous times on the show, you're like, I'm not the musician. I'm not the creative type, mm-hmm. but you are a lead pastor. I am. And I know for a fact that you deeply care about your church and your community, and you care about these things. You care about everyone who shows up to Four Corners feeling like seen and known, cared for, right? I know that you don't want to just simply be a young church or an old church. Right. How how does this list hit you in thinking about your own services, your own practices? Uh, yeah, that's a great uh, question. It does hit me in the sense of, I think we can... Um, so I love the old hymns, but you sometimes okay. sometimes we can treat, our church or just newer churches in general, can treat old hymns as like, Tossing a bone to the older people, right? Like, uh, feels as opposed to almost. be like, this is as important as mm. the Hillsong song that we did or the name your thing. Or we take all the old hymns and always change them. I'm for changing them sometimes. Sometimes they've been redone in this, but right. it does feel a little odd when every time it gets changed. Right. And so I do think helping people. You know, like not not seeing the hymns as like, hey, this is for all you old people. But instead, the worship leader, the pastor being like, let me tell you why we're singing this. Like, yes. This is like right. at the core of who we are as a Shepherd faith. Them. Here right. we yes. go. Uh, and I also appreciate, apart from the worship, to be a multi-generational church, uh, I do think people of all generations need to see in their leadership that they care about us equally. Right. Like, Agreed. yes, I might talk to the older person in the corner, but it's kind of an annoyance. But I'm going to laugh and hang out with the guy who's oh, my right. age and we're going to yuck it up. That's good. The person over there is like, well, you didn't give me that same energy. That's like, right. I do think it takes some intentionality. I think it's hardest for people our age with on both ends of the spectrum with the people who are a lot older than us but also the people who are a lot younger than us. Cause like, I, right. you know, I don't know. Sure. I'll come talk to you and we'll do this. What do I say though? Right. Exactly. So I think people need to see that we genuinely care about all multi-generations and then the, the generations will show up. It's the same thing with ethnicity, right? Right. Right. Uh, we're not trying to be multi-ethnic for the sake of being able to say we are, but right. because there's a bigger picture there. Well, and that's the thing that always convicts me. Cause I remember popular being asked a number of times, Hey, how do you guys, how do you do this multi-generational thing? And mm-hmm. I never knew what to say other than, I don't know, treat people like they matter because Good. they do. It's like, it's, you know, like if there's an issue, like, hey, the font's too small for me to read, like, think it over yourself and make the font a little bigger. Yeah. Like, I know that it's maybe not the hippest thing for you to do like that. And I love how many things in this list have nothing to do with the stage. Yes. Like how Absolutely. you connect with people before and after, how you're actually pursuing Jesus. That kind of stuff matters. And it's not just about like this perfect, flawless execution of a song. Which is, you know, I think where a lot of that kind of ends up. And uh, I think this was a really challenging list. Thanks. Shout out to my friend Dan Lugo for kind of always keeping this stuff out in front for all of us. Well, you've been listening here to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And uh, I have 
a story I'm going to read, Brian. Yes. <laughs> you do. I'm just I'm, acknowledging. Are you okay, Robot Brian? <laughs> yes. Affirmative. Please read our story. You do have a story that is correct. <laughs> you will read it. I will respond. Uh, before I do, though. <laughs> Clock will tick down. Music play. Clock is currently clicking down. People are turning off their radios. Uh, <laughs> Anyone joining us right now is, again, super confused. Um, Although this is pretty much our show. So. That's true. Anyone who's been, been with us for any length of time should probably expect this. Yeah. All right. So you wanted to tell us about, I forget, a, a cardigan or a neighborhood? Well, or, a, or Mr. Rogers movie coming out okay. called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So I'm I had interested. the uh, I had the uh, good fortune uh, through the station here of being able to go and see the premiere. We don't believe in good fortune. We're Christians, Brian. Yes. <laughs> you were blessed. I was blessed. <laughs> That's awesome. I was blessed to go see it. Uh, and uh, I just want to let you know it was really good. And I would encourage you. It comes out on November the 22nd. It's called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It's about Mr. Rogers. But it, what I really enjoyed about this movie is it's not just about Mr. Rogers. But it's also it's more about a reporter and the role that Mr. Rogers played in his life. And it's a true story. And uh, Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers. And I was really pleasantly surprised by it. I went and I was like, all right, a Mr. Rogers movie. It was really good. I'm going to take my family to go see it uh, over the holiday season at some point. So it comes out November the 22nd. Let me encourage you. Go see the Mr. Rogers movie called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. You are living a hashtag blessed life, Brian. Hashtag blessed. That's good. All right. So every once in a while, I don't know that we mention it very often, but there's a uh, a think tank that I assembled on Facebook, just of friends of mine, honestly, across the world, actually, that I think are like reading or studying unique things. And every once in a while, I'll just kind of pose questions. They often will weigh in like, hey, have you mm-hmm. guys talked about this or have you seen this article? Sometimes I'll just sort of preempt it and say, all right, what should we talk about this week? Yep. What's kind of stirring? What are you guys reading? And uh, my buddy Monty, he responded first to saying uh, the importance of integrity and honor. And I said, okay, I'm listening. Tell me more. And then he sent this story. And I've never heard it before. I've never read it. I actually don't know where it's from. It's called The Emperor's Seed. And I was reading it uh, Sunday night. And I, I, it really resonated with me. So have you read it yet? Never heard of it. Okay, nope. so I'm just going to read it. And it. I want to get your like, real honest okay. in-the-moment responses. Okay, here we go. Ready? Uh, there once was an emperor from China who had no children and needed to choose a successor. Thousands of children from across the kingdom came to the palace and were surprised when the emperor exclaimed that he was going to choose one of them. He he gave them all a seed. They were to go home to their villages, plant the seed in a pot, and tend it for a year. When they returned in a year, the emperor would judge their efforts and choose his successor. There was a boy named Ling who received his seed and returned to his village. His mother helped him choose a pot and to put some soil into it. Ling watered the pot every day. Once a week, the children of the village would get together to compare their plants. After a few weeks, there were signs of life in all but Ling's pot. The weeks passed, and Ling continued to water his pot every day. After a few months, the pots really came to life. Some had trees starting to grow. Some had flowers. Some had leafy shrubs. The poor old Ling still had nothing growing in his pot, leading the other children to make fun of him. Mm. Ling continued to water his pot every single day. A year passed, and it was time to return to the palace to show what had grown and decide on the new heir. Ling was anxious as his pot still showed no signs of life. What if they punish me? They won't know that I've watered it every day. They'll think that I'm lazy. His mother looked him in the eye and explained that whatever the consequences were, he had to return and show the emperor his barren pot. 
Ling and the other children entered the palace gates. By now, some of the plants were looking magnificent, and the children were wondering which one the emperor would choose. Ling, of course, was embarrassed as other children looked at his lifeless pot and scoffed. The emperor came out and started to make his way through the crowd, looking at the many impressive trees, shrubs, and flowers that were on display. The boys all puffed their chests out and tried to look as regal as possible, hoping that they would be chosen as the heir to the empire. Then the emperor came to Ling. He looked at the pot, and then he looked at Ling. What happened here, he asked. I watered the pot every day, but nothing ever grew, Ling muttered nervously. Then he grumbled something to himself and moved on. After a few hours, the emperor finally finished his assessment. He stood on, uh, in front of the children and congratulated them on their efforts. Clearly, some of you desperately want to be emperor and would do anything to make that happen. But there is, there's one boy that I would like to point out as he has come to me with nothing. Ling, come here, please. Oh, no, thought Ling. He slowly sauntered to the front of the group, holding his barren pot. The emperor held up the pot for all to see, and the other children laughed. Then the emperor continued. A year ago, I gave you all a seed. I told you to go away, to plant the seed, and return with your plant. The seeds that I gave you all were boiled until they were no longer viable and wouldn't grow. But I see before me thousands of plants in only one barren pot. Integrity and courage are more important values for leadership than proud displays. Mm. So Ling here will be my heir. Wow. I didn't see that one coming. Right? I was like, oh, well, clearly Ling's going to be the, the chosen one. But the boy, that's good. That's good. So uh, just upon hearing that for the first time, I'd never heard that story before. What did you think? What kind of stands out to you about that yeah. story? Yeah. A, can we just make the joke about seedling? Oh, boy. No. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to John for John's reaction. <laughs> Seedling, really? That good? Good, yeah. Uh, honestly, the the thing that comes out there is there are there are daily, almost hourly opportunities for us to cut corners and for us to do things that other people will never see. So the point, one of the points of the story, right, is obviously none of their seeds grew and everybody else just grabbed new seeds because obviously I did something wrong. I have to make it look well except right. for this kid. There are opportunity after opportunity after opportunity in our days to cut corners, to uh, make ourselves look better than we are, mm -hmm. to do things that aren't true, uh, to craft a message that isn't accurate. All sorts of ways that we cut corners and all of them are defined by a lack of integrity. Mm. And uh, oftentimes those are cheered in our culture, right? Like, oh, you did what you had to do to put your best foot forward, all this stuff. And so that's a par uh, that's a powerful parable of like. No, uh, oftentimes the thing that is most um, um, worthy of being highlighted is this integrity that says, I don't know why this didn't work, but it didn't. Mm. But here's what truthfully happened. I find that really powerful and, and really convicting. Well, and it's it's uh, the irony is not lost on me. It's actually not ironic at all, because Monty Fowler, my friend who shared this, is one of the most like courageous, honorable people that I no. Right? And and so I really appreciate this, in, in, especially in form of a parable. But I think the idea I actually heard a Simon Sinek clip. Maybe we'll actually do this later in the week because he's talking about this continuum of performance versus trust. And he was interviewing the people in charge of choosing like the SEAL Team 6. Mm -hmm. And uh, essentially his conclusion, and maybe we'll get into it in greater depth later, was that they would actually take someone of mediocre performance and high trust. Like obviously nobody wants low performance, low trust. Right. But what they found, though, was that someone of high trust, high character, and even mediocre performance is of much greater value wow. to the team than someone whose performance and skill is through the roof, but you can't trust them. Mm. They have no integrity. They don't have any like true, proper courage. And I think... In this Chicago landscape right now, with 
churches and church leaders and some of the stuff that we unfortunately have to keep talking about. Yeah. Man, that's important. Integrity yeah. and courage are more important values for leadership than proud displays. Yeah, like and, that, that to me just resonates. And in many ways, integrity and character are one of the few things you can control. That's right. Uh, you can't control results. You can't can, you can't manufacture long term results. You, they, eventually, you get caught up, but you can make daily, hourly decisions to live with integrity, live That's with right. character, live with honesty. Uh, even if it's not what you had planned in, in terms of the results, like and and that that parable is great. That really is powerful. And I think you're right on that. They are decisions every day. We tend yeah. to really think about how can I act with integrity when this big thing happens in my yeah. life. You're like, if you're lying about why you're late every single day, that might be a place to start. You mm. know what I mean? Like those are those micro expressions that are, I think are actually forming us into the people that we're becoming. It's really good. Well, thanks, Monty Fowler, for that. That was really really good. Coming up next, ten reasons that teenagers have so much anxiety today. We're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Brian Fromm, can you, can you whistle like that? No. You want to give it a swing? Is that good? It was spot on. I feel, I, I feel like I'm an adequate whistler. <laughs> I don't think I have great whistling skills, but then when I'm around people who just can't whistle, you're like... Oh, come on. Crushing it. I cannot do the old put your finger you in your mouth whistle. can't do the whistles. cool dad whistle. No. Do you, <laughs> no, I cannot. I've tried. There's could, two could whistles. Could when you were a kid? I don't think so, no. Oh, okay. There's two types of whistles I can't do. It is the, or common whistles. It is the putting the fingers in the mouth dad whistle. Yep. And it's the, do you ever run like the piece of grass where you like put it between and you blow on it like makes a really oh, yeah. loud screeching noise? I can't, noise. Do, that I can't do that either. No. But just regular whistling. I feel like I'm adequate. So you're a, you're a, B, a B plus whistler. Maybe more like a B, B minus, but oh, yeah, I'm fair. okay. My dad had like the best dad whistle. We could be three blocks down. You heard that whistle. You're like, I have to go home right now, guys. I don't know what's happening. It's so, time to go home. So why is it that people like I've tried the whole finger in the mouth thing, like trying to do that and like people show like, but you just can't do it while others can. Like, what is the differentiating factor there? It's, it's not that nuanced. I think it's predestination. Actually. <laughs> I think it's that's the elect. The elect can do it. And the rest of us are doomed. Sermon so. illustration of finger in the mouth whistling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I need to uh, workshop that title. <laughs> All right. So Amy Morin, 10 reasons teens have so much anxiety today. One is because their dads can't whistle. Uh, I know. The, that's not true. So my, me, kid, my kids feel badly about their dad. <laughs> they do. You just soak up that pity. All right. Here's how she starts it. It says the New York Times recently published an article called Why Are More American Teenagers Than Ever Suffering From Severe Anxiety? The author chronicled several teens battle with anxiety over the course of a few years. The article questioned why we're seeing such a rise in anxiety among today's youth. As a psychotherapist, college lecturer, and author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, I agree that anxiety is a widespread issue among adolescents. It's the most common reason people of all ages enter my therapy office. That's a heck of a statement, by the way. That's crazy. The most common reason. Uh, some young people are overachieving perfectionists with a crippling fear of failure. Others worry so much about what their peers think of them that they're unable to function. Some have endured rough circumstances throughout their young lives, but others have stable families, supportive parents, and plenty of resources. I suspect the rise in anxiety reflects several societal changes and cultural shifts that we've seen over the past couple of decades. Here are the top 10 reasons. Why don't you take number one? Yeah, and these are... These are really interesting for yes. parents uh -huh. for teenagers who might be listening, but also just for people who interact with with kids and totally. teenagers. So number one, electronics offer an unhealthy escape. 
Constant access to digital devices lets kids escape uncomfortable emotions like boredom, loneliness, or sadness by immersing themselves in games when they are in the car or by chatting on social media when they're sent to their rooms. And now we're seeing what happens when an entire generation has spent their childhoods avoiding discomfort. Their electronics replaced opportunities to develop mental strength, and they didn't gain the coping skills they need to handle everyday challenges. Man, oh man. All right, number two, happiness is all the rage. That's for sure. Happiness is emphasized so much in our culture that some parents think it's their job to make their kids happy all the time. When a child is sad, his parent, his parents cheer them up. When, he's ang- when she's angry, they calm her down. Kids grow up believing that if they don't feel happy around the clock, something must be wrong. That creates a lot of inner turmoil. They don't understand that it's normal and healthy to feel sad, Mm. frustrated, guilty, disappointed, and angry sometimes, too. That's good. Number three, parents are giving unrealistic praise. Uh Uh-oh. Saying things like, you're the fastest runner on the team or you're the smartest kid in your grade doesn't build self-esteem. Instead, it puts pressure on kids to live up to those labels. Mm. That can lead to crippling fear of failure or rejection. We talked about this a couple of months ago, by the way. One of the things that I said I wanted to ask my kids at the end of the day was where did you fail yeah and i remember getting some pushback like don't ask your kid about that and i'm like mm. no i want the house to be a safe place for them to say yeah i totally biffed it here yeah uh, number four parents are getting caught up in the rat race that's the truth many yep. parents have become like personal assistants to their teenagers they work hard to ensure their teens can compete they hire tutors and private sports coaches and pay expensive sat prep courses they make it their job to help their teens build transcripts that will impress a top school and they send the message that their teen must excel at everything in order to land a coveted spot at such a college mm. number five Kids aren't learning emotional skills. We emphasize academic preparation and put little effort into teaching kids the emotional skills they need to succeed. In fact, a national survey of first-year college students revealed that 60% feel emotionally unprepared for college life. Knowing how to manage your time, combat stress, and take care of your feelings are key components to living a good life. Without healthy coping mechanisms, it's no wonder teens are feeling anxious over everyday hassles. Okay, this one might be controversial. Number six, parents view themselves as protectors rather than guides. Somewhere along the line, many parents began believing their role is to help kids grow up with as few emotional and physical scars as possible. They became so overprotective that their kids never practiced dealing with challenges on their own. Consequently, these kids have grown up to believe they're too fragile to cope with the realities of life. Mm. That's a hard one. Yeah, no kidding. Number seven, adults don't know how to help kids face their fears the right way. Hmm. At one end of the spectrum, you'll find parents who push their kids too hard. They force their children to do things that terrify them. On the other end, you'll find parents who don't push kids at all. Hmm. They let their kids opt out of anything that sounds anxiety provoking. Exposure is the best way to conquer fear, but only when it's done incrementally. Without practice, gentle nudging, and guidance, kids never gain confidence that they can face their fears head on. That's good. Number eight, parents are parenting out of guilt and fear. That's not either of us, right? (laughs) Parenting stirs up uncomfortable emotions like guilt and fear, but rather than let themselves feel those emotions, many parents are changing uh, their parenting habits so they don't let their kids out of their sight because it stirs up their anxiety or they feel so guilty saying no to their kids that they back down and give in. Consequently, they teach their kids that uncomfortable emotions are intolerable. Mm, Number nine, kids aren't being given enough free time to play. While organized sports and clubs play an important role in kids' lives, adults make and enforce the rules. Unstructured play teaches kids vital skills, like how to manage disagreements without an adult refereeing. Mm. And solitary play teaches kids how to be alone with their thoughts and comfortable in their own skin. Oh, oh boy. All right. Number 10, family hierarchies are out of whack. 
Although kids give the impression that they'd like to be in charge, deep down, they know they aren't capable of making good decisions. They want their parents to be leaders, even when there is dissension in the ranks. And when the hierarchy gets muddled or even flipped upside down, their anxiety skyrockets. Mm. Okay, so I'm not the parent of a teenager. Yes. You are. I am. I'm curious if like one of these or two of these like really jumped out at you or really felt like a punch to the gut. Or any of these like ones that you read and you're like, holy cow, I got to go fix that like yesterday. I feel like a lot of them are, to be honest with you. Yeah, my really? daughter, by the way, my daughter turned 16 this week. Oh, my Isn't goodness. crazy? Happy Isn't birthday. Crazy? Yeah, next Sunday. Coming up on Sunday. Uh, the electronics one, I think, is a tough one to read because uh-huh. uh, I feel like we try to mediate our kids' electronics, but it's so all-encompassing that all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, yeah, no, that's hard to get your handle on. Mm. Um the kid, the ones with parents protecting uh, rather than guiding, viewing themselves as protectors. Yeah, do you agree with that one? I, uh, it's a hard one not to fall into. Right. I would say because uh, be, sometimes we need to protect, right? Right, but especially as they become teenagers, you need to let them have some. Some you need to let them fail, like you said, or have some experiences uh, in which they've got to cope with things. Um, and, and the number nine one here: kids aren't being given enough free time to play. Uh, that's one I fight because I feel like teenagers, especially as they get to high school. Like, I don't feel like for a lot of times it's parents who are doing this. I feel like a lot of times it's the various things, Mm. including uh, just schoolwork and amounts of work that really make it uh, really make it hard. And so in the end, I think the goal is to just love your kids well, right? To figure out the parent kid dynamic for your family as you go. Well, the problem is we don't know what well looks like. That's where all the stress comes from. I think we all want to parent well yep. right i don't know i've never by the way maybe maybe there's someone out there i've never heard someone say you know what i don't want to parent well i know yep. I'm, I'm okay totally screwing them up yep. like we want to do it well this is why all of these are so difficult right because we think that by like being a helicopter parent or a lawnmower parent like we're actually helping like loving them well and i think part of what she's saying is some of that might yeah. be doing more damage than you realize absolutely the whole helicopter parent thing is a real struggle uh and a real difficulty but uh, yeah, you know, I would encourage parents out there, like, you're not going to get it perfect. Just keep doing it as well as you can. Yeah. <laughs> keep loving your kids and uh, have the conversations with your kids as well. I think that's a good uh, conversation starter, my friend. Thank well, you. coming up next, something strange happened at a Waffle House. Hmm. Mm. I wonder what that could be. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes. Our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. We missed you. Glad <laughs> glad you're here still. You didn't go anywhere and we didn't go anywhere. Nope. Let's party. Right anyway, here in these same seats. Right. I'm not even sitting. You. That is interesting. People probably don't know. You stand, I sit. I, they don't know because they don't. I think that's, that's good behind the curtain. It's, that's people like, enjoy that. That's the like saucy behind the scenes. Yep. Like, ooh. Yep. When they write this book about this show one day, there'll be one chapter. Got Ian stands, Brian sits. <laughs> well, my brother's a chiropractor, so oh. things like standing when I can or something. Although, like right now, I'm like leaning forward. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, is this any better for my back? I don't know that it actually is. <laughs> anyway, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good at Twitter at Common Good Talk. And uh, every once in a while... I like to do the story that we see PJ just get excited about. Mm-hmm. Our producer, John, posted this on Facebook a couple of days ago and was so excited about it. I thought, okay, let's do, let's do a segment on that. I think uh, he might appreciate that. So let me just read a little bit 
to you uh, as if you haven't read it, even though I know you have. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there are some nuggets of truth here. So it says, late last Saturday night, Ethan Crispo, which is a phenomenal name. Especially for the part of the story. That's, that's right. Had just left a friend's birthday party in Birmingham, Alabama, and walked into a Waffle House around midnight to grab a bite. Are you a Waffle House guy? You ever been? I've been one time in my life. And I enjoyed it on that one time, okay. but I, that was like 15 years ago. So this segment is not brought to you by Waffle it House. It is not. not. Although if they, again. Are there Waffle House? I'm really asking this. What do you think the closest Waffle House to us here? Are we talking like states? Or are we talking somewhere in Illinois? What would your guess be? I don't know, but you should Keep Google reading it. Well, I'm going to Google this. <laughs> I'm right. going to Google this. So we got Ethan Crispo. He left uh, just left a friend's birthday party in Birmingham, Alabama. Walked into a Waffle House around midnight to grab a bite. Crispo told CNN only a single employee was working in the restaurant. He described the cook's face as a wash in bewilderment at finding he was by himself managing the night shift. More than 30 people were there eating and there was just one man left to, quote, fend off the incoming crowd of hungry, heavily imbibed customers. Crispo said Mm. he became resigned to going home on an empty stomach. But a customer finished his meal, asked for an apron, and stepped behind the counter to wash dishes. It was a smooth transition, Crispo24 said. He was uh, he just busted his butt and helped out. Crispo said he asked Ben, the lone associate working, who the man washing dishes was. Turns out he didn't work at the restaurant, nor did he work at a Waffle House anywhere. Another woman wearing a dress and heels also stepped up. She walked behind the counter to get a coffee pot. At first I thought it was out of necessity, like she just wanted coffee, Crispo said, but she was enlisting as a second member of the volunteer staff. The two worked together in a team, bussing tables, stacking cups, and washing dishes. Meanwhile, Ben, the actual employee, manned the cash register and cooked at the grill. The man washing dishes occasionally uh, had to ask Ben where stuff should go, Crispo said. But otherwise, it was as though two strangers, without even talking to each other, had spontaneously learned to run a restaurant. Wow, to run a restaurant in tandem. Pat Warner, a spokesman for Waffle House, told CNN the store had a miscommunication about the duty roster that night, and it created a little gap in staffing. We're very appreciative and thankful, but we do prefer to have our associates behind the counter. He added that Waffle House (laughs) restaurants tend to have a special sense of community. He recalled a similar time in 2014 when uh, diners volunteered to keep a restaurant running when paid staff couldn't get to work during Atlanta's notorious Snowmageddon storm. Mm. So just a feel-good story of a couple of strangers stepping in seen a need and it just happened to get captured and I love stories like this because it feels like a lot of times for better or for worse you and I have to kind of take a deep dive into some of the ugliness of humanity and some of the brokenness and stories like this it's not that it's ever far from my mind but they do really remind me they remind me that there's there's still just really good people in the world who do things like this without you know any fanfare any need of Compensation. So I, I'm, you know, I'd love to know how this story hits you as you hear it. Uh, yeah. So I think you hit on the great point there, but let me just answer the earlier question. Nearest Waffle House? Sure. Uh, I don't know which one of these is closer, but outside, uh, there is not any near us. So outside of St. Louis and outside of Indianapolis, those wow. are your two choices. That's a bummer. Uh, so that was at wafflehouse.com. Find your nearest location. So we're going to trust them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's that. You know what I like about this story is you pointed it out is the they didn't do it for money. Didn't do it for fanfare. It wasn't like taking a selfie. Look what we did today. You know, it was 
uh, stepping in to help. And I think so much to, to spin this to, to the world you and I live in with churches or just with communities and neighborhoods. I really think the backbone of, say, churches isn't the charismatic person on the stage, mm. isn't always the paid staff. It is the the men and women of all ages who are doing like just kind of the the behind the scenes work of a church of a company, of a neighborhood, not doing it for fanfare, loving on people, helping people, stepping in where they see needs. I think in some ways it's the best of humanity, and it's also just the best of, uh, It's I think it's what makes churches the best, is when a church can look at their people and be like, okay, it's not about an audience coming to watch person X talk. Right. It's about a community of people loving each other, stepping in where there are needs, uh, doing it selflessly, not for the adulation or the money, but instead out of their care for people. I, I really like that. Well, and it's interesting to me because I, I can be uh, unhelpfully skeptical <laughs> at times when it's like, this church did this great thing, and we also just happen to have a, f- a film crew with us. And you're like, oh, just do the nice thing like mm. without the viral video, without the... And the reason that I think stories like this resonate is because... You know, older, young, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. I think we see stuff like this and we go, yeah, a little more of that in the world. When yeah. It seems like the vast majority of people that get the press and the coverage and the clickbait. It's always like, look at me, look at the thing I did. And just this sort of like humble, like there's a need. I'm going to step in. Yeah. And it's not like somebody, you know, did something. It wasn't like over the top heroic like they and then they donated a million dollars to build yep. Waffle Houses everywhere. It was sort of like, ah, there's a need right here. And I think. You know, I've said it before. My friend has a sign over his sink that says everyone wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. <laughs> it's so <laughs> easy to like swing for these huge and we should. We should dream yeah, big. I yeah. think particularly Christ followers like we should really care about uh, the global water crisis. We should care about systemic injustice. Obviously, sometimes, though, hmm. isn't there somebody that's like waiting at the same smoothie counter that you are and they yeah. just need help with their kid yeah. or they just need someone to hold the door for them yeah. or they, they just need someone to step in. I think sometimes it's easy, particularly in the sort of like social media age where we're like, we've kind of inverted audience and performer and we're just always performing for yep. each other all yep. the time. And Selfies this, all the time. And you mentioned even yeah. being on your sabbatical, like, oh, I feel like I should be posting this. Like yeah. even that instinct and you weren't even doing anything altruistic. It's just like, oh, this should be shared. I should be sharing this. Who are the people, what are the spaces and opportunities right in front of us to just be love to them? Yeah. You know? And I would think serving other people, like let's use this story that we're just talking about. Serving other people is can be an enjoyable experience. Like I gotta be I gotta think that I wonder what Ethan Crispo thought after he got to spend time behind the counter at a Waffle House. Like I'd right. be like, Well, that wasn't the experience that I expected today. That was uh uh, he calls it one of the most memorable experiences of his life. Yeah. Oh, wait, it's not Ethan Crispo. It's the man, the man who helped Ethan Crispo. I wonder what he thought, the man thought afterwards. Yeah, like, right. Well, this was really fun. Right. Like, I got to be behind the counter of a Waffle House. I yeah, didn't come right. in here expecting that. Right. And I got to help somebody. I think that's the thing. Like, sometimes we like to position helping others as, like, just a burden on ourselves. Like, oh, mm. but you should do it. When in reality, think about your own life. Probably some of the most energizing things you've ever done 
is these opportunities to step right. in and help other people. That's right. And you can make connections that way. And, and you get to do you get to do things that you probably weren't expecting to do. It can be really tiresome to only think about yourself all the time. And so uh, I do. I wonder it wouldn't have been fun. They said they didn't even get this guy's name and just kind of got back there. Oh, and man, did I it. love and so that. I do think these types of stories in the midst of ugly stories are what's best of our culture and our society. Yeah, it's what's best about the church. It's it's just uh it's in it's encouraging that these things are not just still happen. They're happening all the time. Right. But like you said, they're not the stories that we write about. They're not the stories that are out there. And uh, we'd encourage you out there, like uh, keep looking for opportunities to help people that need it. Not so you can take a selfie and post it. Right. But just for the sake of, of helping people. And, may, and not to be too pastoral. Maybe it's more than just looking for them. Maybe it begins with a prayer. God, help me to see needs. Because yep. a lot of us are going to the same coffee shops and the same malls and the same. We're going to these same places all the time. There's probably needs that we're kind of blind to, you know, because we're stressed or we're overworked or we're overcommitted or we're our mind is elsewhere. All those things are normal. But like, what would it look like as a part of a a morning rhythm, perhaps say, God, help me just to see the needs of the people around me. And I can't meet every need. but Help me to see the needs that I can meet. Like, help me to be Jesus to somebody today. And I think. I don't know. That would be a pretty revolutionary way to begin our day by saying, I just want to be Jesus to somebody. It's really I think good. That's a, that's a good invitation for all of us. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, coming up next, here's the headline. Five things to never say to someone with depression and anxiety. I guarantee every single one of us listening knows at least one person who fits in that category. Mm-hmm. Here are five things to never say to them. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. You've probably tuned me out at this point anyway, so <laughs> I say it the same way every time, unless I'm saying it incorrectly like I did yesterday, where I just gave a website that we don't own. Somebody enjoyed that. All right, if you go to them, just tell them Brian and Ian sent you, and they'll be like, who? Who? But I don't know them. those people, but thanks, yeah, thanks, thanks Brian and Ian in Chicagoland for whatever you're doing over there. Uh, all right, so I mentioned it a little early, 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 earlier, early, yeah. early in the earlier, yes, earlier in the earlier. Not <laughs> as a quick aside. One of my dad's pet peeves. They, okay. they tend to be like language related, but when he's watching the news and they go um, reports of an earlier accident, he's always like, "Every accident is an earlier accident. <laughs> no one's reporting about a future accident." That is like, a, <laughs> that is a tr- he is he is not wrong. Yeah, but once you hear it though, you can't unhear it. I guarantee in the next week you'll hear 30 times reports of an earlier accident. I'm like, oh, gosh. And those probably happen all the time, those types of... Uh, Constantly. Just, yeah. But from people funny. that speak for a living, though, that's like their job to, you know, say <laughs> words to the rest of us. I do have to, I've never thought of it. That's funny. <laughs> now that you think about it, you're like, yeah, why is it an earlier accident? Every accident's earlier. That's you funny. Can't, you can't not think about it. It's going to be in your head now. Either way, I've mentioned it. Uh, it's from uh, relevantmagazine.com. And it's an interesting headline. It says, five things to never say to someone with depression and anxiety. And Mm. so this is a topic we've covered a number of times. Thankfully, we have friends much smarter than us uh, who have come and kind of weighed in and shared some wisdom. But I thought this article, and again, I I would first say for anyone listening who's thinking, I don't have anybody with with depression and anxiety Mm. in my life. Like, you you do. You do. just, right. So maybe start there. Every single one of us has friends and family members that fit this category. Maybe that's you. Um, so we'd love to know what would you add, what would you take away from this list. But I, I think articles like this are really helpful because they're really practical, especially for someone who's thinking, 
I want to better care for the people in my mm-hmm. life, but I don't even know where to start. So what often ends up happening is we say that the kinds of things that this article is going to kind of propose that we stop saying. Yes. So I think it's really kind of practical. And I, I, if you're a note taker or something, this might be a good time to get a pen or something. Yeah. And along those lines, I think uh, we always have this desire to say something, which is born out of a good thing. Totally. Right. We want to be helpful. We want to help people. Uh, but sometimes when you say the wrong thing, it's, it's, it compounds the problem. And so uh, we we presume best intentions and then say, what are uh, this person saying? When you have people who are struggling with anxiety and depression in your life, uh, what are some things never to say? So uh, these five are helpful. Let's go over them and see what we got. Here's number one. Uh, things to, I strongly encourage you to never say again, this author says. Just let it go. You'll be fine. Yeesh. Nothing is as painful as someone telling you to just get over it. As if we can snap our fingers and all is well once again. Mental health doesn't work like that. The human brain is a physical organ that can suffer from disease and dysfunction just like the rest of the body. To expect that someone with a mental health disorder can just, quote, snap out of it is like asking someone with a heart condition to just get over it. Mm. That's not how it works. You're basically telling them you're not positive enough, spiritual enough, or strong enough. That's destructive and dangerous rhetoric that does nothing to leave the person who is suffering feeling like they are inadequate. It's kind of like what Cherry was saying yesterday with the uh, the brushing dentist mm-hmm. analogy. Like, no one's ever been shamed to go to the, like, for going to the dentist. Yeah. No one's ever been like... My gums are throbbing. Like, <laughs> get over it. Like, no, you need to go see a professional yeah. like immediately. Yeah. All right. Uh, second and five things to never say to someone with depression and anxiety. Nothing. Uh, this author said, I sat across the table from a friend in the early years of my therapy and shared with him what I was going through. As he looked at me with spaced out eyes, all he had to say when I finished was, wow, that was it. He proceeded to stare some more as if. I was an abstract painting in an art gallery. I felt more <laughs> naked than a person with no clothes on in the center of Times Square. I was exposed, and it clearly made no sense to him. You may or may not be the empathetic type, but someone uh, but someone you know and love may come to you someday looking for help. Are you the right person for them to ask? Maybe. Maybe not. Regardless, you're there in that moment, and they're telling you their heart and soul. When they're done, remind them that you care about them and that you're with them in the fight. You'll likely have no idea what to tell them about their disorder, and that's okay. The most important thing you can say to someone when they have opened up about their disorder is that you see them and that you still value their friendship. If you can't say anything nice, you may need some therapy yourself. (laughs) That's funny. That's pretty good. (laughs) Number three, uh, and this will be a quick one. Number three are things not, uh, not to say to those that you know who are struggling with depression, anxiety. Number three is you're crazy. And the author says, need I expound upon this one? No. No, I do not. <laughs> well, and that's a funny one, too, because I think that sometimes, like, there's the obvious, like, you're crazy, like, aggressive that we know yeah. is not right. But I hear people all the time say it sort of lightheartedly, like, oh, you're, you're crazy, like, more oh. dismissive. Yeah. And I think that is equally as unhelpful. All right, number four of five things to never say to someone with depression and anxiety Uh, You need to pray and read the Bible more. This is a spiritual deficiency. Okay, so this one might be controversial for some people. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're a Christian and well-meaning people have told you that uh, that you're suffering from a spiritual deficiency or a demonic attack, I'm sorry. If you're the person who has said that to someone, please stop. I'm serious. It's like telling someone with diabetes that they're not close enough to God and that's why they're suffering. As a follower of Jesus, I do believe in what we call spiritual warfare in Christian circles. I do think that our enemy will exploit our weaknesses, whether that be mental illness, addiction, lust, greed, etc. For someone suffering from depression and anxiety, I know that the enemy has had a part to play. And yet, 
when people start spiritually explaining away everything, the truth is shrouded in another lie from the enemy. If you suffer from depression, there's a good chance that the enemy will use that to torment you. Are you possessed? No. Are you normal? Yes. Are you a human inflicted with mortality just like everyone else? Mm. Absolutely. Mm. That is a powerful one. Why do you think that's controversial? Oh, because I think there are plenty of people, maybe even people listening that really do think, oh yeah, it's simply and solely a spiritual attack. I actually like the way this author sort of gives a balance. Like, yeah, the, the enemy is most that. likely playing a part in that. But I've been in the room when I've heard pastors and leaders say, we're just going to kind of pray the depression away or mm. or they leave them with a, a pretty legalistic, like, well, okay, I need 65 minutes of prayer and meditating and fasting from you every day and Bible reading at these times, which are all good things. I'm wow. for all those things. That's <laughs> what makes this one so tricky because I'm obviously pro- Growing closer to God, reading your Bible more, spending, you know, that's all good. But to like, to use that as sort of an equation or the, prescription. Yeah, prescription is the right word. For something that is biochemically mm-hmm. maybe not right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, it's super dangerous. And I do appreciate that the author, like you said, is very even handed with that. Like saying, yeah. this is, I, when I first saw that headline, I was like, oh, they're going to discount that completely. And, right. no, this, and they don't, yeah, right. Prayer is important. This is important. But I think that was really well done and well written. Number five. Uh, other people have it worse. This is a cop-out for people who don't want to actually listen to someone else and meet them in their pain. We hear it all the time when financial needs come up. Oh, there are poor children dying in a third world right. country. Stop being so selfish. We often use the same reasoning with people who are suffering from mental disorder. Uh, Johnny down the street is dying of a horrible disease and would give his left kidney just to have depression like you. Stop being selfish Jeez, and remember that you have it good. I hope no one's heard that, oh, by the way. Awful. If we're not to compare ourselves to one another in our successes and achievements, why do we think it's all right to compare ourselves in our sufferings? Mm. When did God give humanity the right to deem what suffering is more painful than another? When we tell someone to cheer up because they could have it worse, we're basically telling them that they're selfish and proud. Would you tell that to a family member who discovers that they have cancer? When someone loses a loved one, we don't say, let it go. Other people have lost way more family members than you. You still have all your third cousins. Uh, that one's a hard one because people do do that. You know? Yeah. Like, right. hey, you don't have it so bad. And, right. and that's totally missing the boat. Okay. So this author gives a few suggestions. I'm just going to read all five of them. So there are five yeah. things not to say. And then here are five suggestions. And I know this is like drinking from a fire hose. So we, we encourage you to go to the Facebook page, read the whole article, share it, tweet it, whatever. But here are uh, a couple of suggestions, the ways that we can work toward being better friends and family towards those we know who are suffering which, honestly, like looking at the holiday season, yeah. this is a perfect opportunity for us to maybe practice some of these. Absolutely. So one is listen. Be there and listen. Don't stare and say, wow, and don't interrupt with a million suggestions on how to snap out of it. Just listen. Two, return their vulnerability with vulnerability. That's a really good one. Tell them about something you've gone through where you've mm. suffered heartache or pain. This is an important one, though, not to try to one-up them. Mm. Not to like, oh, me, also me, right? Like we've talked about this. Someone loses a child and someone else says, I know how you feel. I lost my dog last year. And you're like, no, <laughs> not that's same. not the same. Yeah. Number three, encourage them to talk with a the therapist. I'm going to say that one again for the Christians listening. Encourage <laughs> them to talk with a the therapist. That is oftentimes a very, very good, important suggestion. Yeah. Number four, remind them of their worth. Remind them that you love and care for them just as you always have and that nothing has changed because they're suffering, which seems obvious, but it's really important. And then five, stand with them through the journey. Let them know that you're always there. Be willing to be uncomfortable. I think that's a great list, man. I don't know if any of those stand out to you in particular or not. but I love that the second to last one there of what to do. Remind them of their worth because I think people who struggle and who are regularly – it gets kind of discounted a little bit – probably struggle to know that, that there's they're not broken and, right. and that they're still loved. I think that's an important one of like – 
I'm here for you. Maybe I can't even understand what you're going through, but I value you. And more importantly, God values you still. Yeah. And, and again, I, we're not going to do this perfectly. We're going to get uncomfortable. It's I think human nature to be uncomfortable at times with other people's pain, which is why I think we often run into saying some of these pithy truisms because yep. we don't know what to do with our discomfort. And like eight or nine times in this article, the author's saying, just sit in it, yeah. like enter into the discomfort. That's some of the best way to be a friend, I think. Well, speaking of some of that identity stuff and some of the other stuff we've touched on, coming up next, Instagram will test hiding likes on some U.S. accounts starting next week. I think this is a fascinating attempt on Instagram's part to maybe dismantle some of what we've created in this social media culture. That's what we're talking about next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can type us into Google and things will show up. Mm -hmm. So that's as far as I'm going to take that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Some things maybe. I wonder if someone could be like stacking the deck in terms of like an SEO. Like if we keep saying that and someone like makes other weird things show up if you type in Ian and Brian – well, we should we should make sure we know whether that's true or not. <laughs> I don't know how to prevent it though. If someone was going to, if some genius hacker, like when I was, I was only probably three or four months at the Yellow Box, and someone hacked into my computer uh, so that anything that I searched on the internet pulled up images of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I was like trying to write a sermon. I was like, my screen was just covered in Nick Cage photos. And I was like, this is hilarious and that's terrifying. Great. That's what I wish I was smart like other people. Like that is, if you have that ability, that's great. That's always how I feel about any of that stuff ever. Because you could make it so every time you search, Nicolas Cage comes up. Which is such a random that's thing to really hack, funny. right? Like pretty harmless, but also. very nefarious things they could have done. That's, you, exactly, right? that's but, exactly right. I was like, all right, I'll take Nick Cage. I'll take <laughs> they call you into the – your boss calls you. Like, Ian, we feel like you have a Nick Cage problem. Have you been looking at Nicolas Cage rock pictures again? I mean looking at Nicolas Cage at all might constitute a Nicolas Cage problem <laughs> to be honest. Speaking of things with the internet that neither of us understand, nope. Instagram. Instagram. Uh, so Instagram will be testing hiding likes on some U.S. accounts starting next week, which I think is really interesting. And you had sort of mentioned as we were kind of scanning this, you're like, oh, so the plan is not to hide – likes from everybody but only not to hide likes from yourself right you can only see your own likes but other people won't be able to see your likes why don't you fill us in a little bit on on the uh, specifics and then let's talk about it yeah because it's fascinating when when i first saw this article i thought what it was saying was that instagram is going to get rid of likes altogether and i'm like that feels like a major part of why people not why people are on there but it's it's a major element oh yeah instagram facebook uh, Twitter as well. Not as much, I don't feel like, on Twitter, but at least Facebook and Instagram. And uh, But all that it is, like you said, is is getting rid of so that when I post something and you like it and other people like it, I can still see how many people have liked it, but it won't be projected to everybody else on the platform. Like, oh, your video got 300 likes. Uh, and it's interesting. He says, right now, uh, Adam Oseri, he's the head of Instagram, he said, right now, we're testing making like counts private, so you'll be able to see how many people like the given photo of yours or a video of yours, but no one else will. Right. His comments were made during Wired 25, a symposium about science, technology, and entertainment. Here's why he said, Mozeri said, the platform will not impact the whole U.S. at once, but here's the reason. It is intended to, quote, depressurize the platform, hmm. particularly for younger users. It's about young people, Moseri said. The idea is to try to depressurize Instagram, make it less of a competition, 
and give people more space to focus on connecting with people that they love and things that inspired him, uh, inspire them. Moseri did not outline specifics about when or how long Instagram's pilot program would last, but it comes months after the company tested hiding links in several other countries, <clears throat> including Australia, Canada, Ireland, and Japan. Uh, in a tweet, Moseri said he welcomes – I like that the head of Instagram is tweeting. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> in a tweet, <laughs> the world's colliding. Uh-huh. Moseri said he welcomes feedback from the experiment from U.S. users. Heads up, he says, we've been testing making likes private on Instagram in a number of countries, we're expanding those tests to the U.S. We are looking uh, for your feedback. One of the big pushbacks here, because uh, the move to de- uh, deprioritize likes has been not well received by everyone. Uh, as Wired notes, some have complained, quote, that hiding engagement metrics will make it harder to determine whose follower count is legitimate. Right. Already hard to do in the first place. Others right. lament that a move in this direction will impact marketing strategy for businesses using the platform to attract advertisers and customers. So it's really interesting. The pushback initially hasn't necessarily been from individual users going, uh, I want people. It's it's the legitimacy of how many followers, and, and I'm not even sure how those metrics work, but, uh, but also marketing people going, hey, we need this data, and we need this to be able to market effectively through Instagram. Right. Uh, those are things I never think about with Facebook, Instagram. Right. Uh, but it's really interesting. What do you think about this whole idea that Instagram is piloting here? So the word I'd never heard of that they use in the article is demetrication, the oh. idea of like deprioritizing uh, public – rankings and public mm. engagement, which I could see from a business end being really problematic. You know, if you're looking to uh, advertise with a certain company or a page or whatever, knowing what their followership matters, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's not a new idea. You know, we needed to know 20 years ago how big someone's emailing list was or how mm-hmm. they're, you know, th- those are metrics in business that I think are important. But it also, the whole story is really fascinating to me because it's talking about like the currency of social power. And I think that that is something that's still relatively new. Like you, you know, you're a young man, still 42. You're you're admitting like I don't even really understand how this works and how it shifts in the algorithms. And we've seen both in Instagram and in YouTube, even you know YouTube rolling out a few years ago, the prioritizing of comments based on engagement. I don't know if yeah. you knew about that. So like I did, and I still don't. It's funny you already said it. I still don't get how that works. I get it. All it really means is me. I mean it, the comments used to be purely chronological, yeah. and now the ones with the most likes kind of bubbled to the surface Mm. of the actual comment feed, which is interesting because sometimes it can be a really thoughtful, beautiful sentiment. Sometimes it's horrible and hateful, but Mm. it gets the most engagement. And I was just listening to a podcast yesterday, I think, about how we measure engagement and how any attention, even negative attention in a current Mm. digital age is influence. Mm. And so – Part of what the guy was kind of asserting was that even when we retweet something that we really disagree with, and we see pastors do this all the time, where yep. they'll retweet something and say, this isn't right, this isn't mm-hmm. good. Uh, in some ways, we're accomplishing exactly what the original author intended, though, Interesting. because it's furthering the spread of ideas. And so by demetricating some of these engagements, particularly in a platform like Instagram, which became way more advertiser-heavy in the last three or four years than I think maybe – it was intended to, or maybe it always was. Who, I, how, how do we know? I doubt they no, mind. <laughs> right, right, for sure. But I like uh, just at a personal level because we don't, we don't, we, you know, I don't run businesses right. necessarily. I think that there's something interesting about oh, the joy of sharing visual engagement and not having to obsess 
over everyone else seeing how many likes it did or didn't get. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people feel the same pressure on Facebook. Absolutely. My wife and I were even just talking about this. You know, she's launched this jewelry line, and she's like, it's interesting how this kind of post gets all sorts of engagement. But then I make this kind of post, and it's like crickets. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be interesting if, like, nobody out there knew if this or that got more or less engagement? Yeah. That would remove some of the shame, you know, as an Enneagram 3. I, I feel <laughs> a lot of that. Uh, I I think, at least at a personal level, I, I'm really interested in how this experiment kind of plays out. Yeah, I, I know it from, uh, like, from our show page. Uh, the different articles that get a lot of traction versus right. not always fascinates me, and there's no, really no rhyme or reason to it. Sometimes so. we'll post things, whether we've talked about it or not, that are borderline controversial, and it won't get anything. Crickets, and, and then right. you'll post something you, – you tend to do it. You'll post something that's just silly and funny. And it's like getting it shared all over up, the, right? and you're like, what? But <laughs> no. then the next day we'll post something controversial or borderline controversial and it gets all this traction right. and you're like, what is going on? I do like – again, I always think of our social media much more from the personal side. Like this whole marketing thing I think is fascinating, but I would be the first to say I don't get it a ton. Uh, but on the personal side, I do – it is interesting. There is this – I think on Facebook, Instagram, there is kind of this internal pressure that, that there is something about who we are by the number of people who like something that we've posted right. or the number of people who've commented. Uh, it's funny. It's even in the next generation. I'll look at some of the, you know, the Instagram uh, things that like uh, high school kids put up. Right. right. And, and the way they respond is, it's really interesting. It's just like affirmation. It's not even like engagement. Mm. It's just like uh, looking great. Oh, this looks great. This And it's like you could just see it. And they're answering every one of them. It's very right. interesting. And you can see that the that the that there is something about the engagement with a personal Instagram or Facebook post that really de- does feed the self-esteem a little bit. Sometimes that's positive. Sometimes it's not. And I think it's really interesting. I think it's admirable on a personal side for the uh, – for the uh, head of Instagram to be saying, we want to depressurize Instagram for our younger followers. I think that's a noble goal. Whether this gets added or not, yeah. I don't know. Uh, and I don't know what it does to marketing and this and that. But I do applaud even just the thought process of how do we depressurize this, especially for the younger kids. So I can't formally make this recommendation. Have you ever seen the show Black Mirror? I've not. So it's each episode is its own kind of standalone mini movie that is almost always pointing to some kind of social commentary. They have one episode called Nosedive. Okay. And again, I'm not formally recommending it because <laughs> the show is pretty rough, but it's a really fascinating take on sort of our obsession with likes. And in this episode, links it directly to some sort of like social rating wow. where like you can see in real time people that are drawn to her and then people that are repelled by her because someone else tweeted or posted something negative about her. And the episode is like pretty depressing, but also you watch it and you're like, yeah, we might not be far off from that. So mm-hmm. I think this experiment, this move actually has a lot of interesting potential for how yeah. we uh, how we engage with social currency. Well, coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we always do with a little interweb insanity, stories we've not seen, sound effects we have not heard. Brian and I are going to laugh and cry right along with you. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I have warned you, but I feel like I need to warn you again. again. This last segment 
is just chaos through and through. Stories we've not read, sound effects we have not heard. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, just warned us that these are going to be drier than his wit, which, <laughs> if you've met him, is saying something. Yes. So this is this is going to downright evaporate right out of the radio waves. And uh, Brian Fromm, I'm going to let you take it away. Florida. Let's start in Florida. Let's do it. Man pleads guilty in South Florida to trafficking Galapagos tortoise. <laughs> A Nevada man has been sentenced in South Florida to 120 days of home confinement and ordered to pay a $7,000 fine for trafficking an endangered Galapagos tortoise. Oh, that's actually not good. Court records show that 33-year-old Alan Wheelock was sentenced in Miami Federal Court Thursday after explaining after pleading guilty to violations of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, p- prosecutors say a canine officer with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission alerted to a parcel at a Miami-area no. FedEx store. The package being shipped to Wheelock in Las Vegas contained a juvenile Galapagos uh, tortoise. Investigators say Wheelock found a licensed breeder online in Central Florida who would only sell to out-of-state customers with proper permits. Wheelock paid a cousin who was living in Florida to buy the reptile and then send it to him. Perez had also been charged. That's the cousin. But he died before the case could go to trial. Oh, gosh. Oh, save me from the wheat turtles! They were too quick for me! Ah! <laughs> I don't know what it says about us, but I always laugh at that character. He could say anything, and I'm going to giggle. All right, Louisiana. Did I say it right? How would a Louisianian say it? Louisiana. Louisiana. I can't do it. All right, this Jesuit grad is living history. A 100-year-old vet who lives by wine, whiskey, and wild, wild women. I'm going to move on from this one. Uh, On December 7th, 1941, there was only one thing Ben Martinez wanted to do. I'm very nervous to keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> read ahead, read ahead, Boy, read ahead. I wanted to fight, he said, echoing the sentiments of countless American young men spurred into action by the Japanese surprise attack on the U.S. Navy fleet at Pearl Harbor. The Army, though, had other plans for him. The Jesuit high school graduate uh, with just a few months to go before earning his pharmacy degree from Loyola University, Martinez was told to wait. On a recent day, a visitor asked Martinez for the secret to his longevity, one of the more frequent asked questions that he gets. He says, I live by the five W's. <laughs> As a pastor, I appreciate the alliteration. He said, without missing a beat, wine, whiskey, and wild, wild women. That one earned him a high five and a smile. You're either incredibly smart or incredibly stupid. <laughs> Next one's out of Tennessee. Popeye's worker body slams woman in restaurant parking lot. I saw this Did one. You? What is wrong with people? <laughs> That is just the question of the every day. Jeez. Stunning video shows a Popeye's employee at a restaurant in Tennessee cha- uh, chase a woman out of the parking lot and body slam her, leaving Jeez. her with several injuries. The video was recorded Tuesday night uh, and shows uh, Darian's Rachel Hughes picking up a 55-year-old woman and throwing her down in Columbia, Tennessee. Hughes was arrested Friday and charged with aggravated assault. The woman has not been identified, suffered nine fractures in her elbow, six broken ribs, and a broken left leg. Rocky McElhaney, the woman's attorney, said the incident occurred. Wait, her attorney's name is Rocky? (laughs) Yeah, in in Tennessee. Amazing. (laughs) Said the incident occurred after the customer noticed she had been double billed for her dinner order. After returning to the restaurant at the manager's suggestion to get a refund, she had an altercation with the employee. Uh, She said the manager treated her with hostility when she returned, but other witnesses reported the woman who is white used racial slurs. Uh, the woman said his client denies using any slurs. Uh, it is still being investigated. Was that wrong? <laughs> Should I not have done that? It's funny because I'm looking at the same article and I'm seeing all the 
times that you skipped saying the lawyer's last name. <laughs> <laughs> Not going. <laughs> I'm like, is he going for it? Nope. Nah, 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 out. All right, England, as we learned yesterday, not as proper as maybe we thought. Got it. New Year radio broadcast played by mistake at Margate Remembrance Service. Hmm. That's not good. A past <laughs> broadcast of a New Year celebration was blared out by mistake at a Remembrance Service. Big Ben's 12 chimes of midnight were played instead of the 11 chimes expected at 11 a.m. by those who gathered. Uh, it was followed by pre-recorded dialogue where one com- uh, commentator wished another happy new year. One resident who did not want to be named said people immediately felt sorry for the organizers, but it was all in good spirit. They had obviously recorded it. They recorded then, went into the two DJs talking. One said, you're a bit ahead of us. <laughs> now let me be the first to tell you, happy new year. According to the onlooker, everyone looked around. When it was all over, people were wishing me a happy new year. <laughs> 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 we doing the whole thing nope you okay. got it there we go <laughs> oh, i'm ready to celebrate though i don't know if i can read this next one i'm going to oh do it oh but, boy but uh this is where we remind you again we did not choose these That's stories a good, good disclaimer we're back to louisiana <laughs> okay hold on i lost it there for a second Camel's testicles bitten by woman at Louisiana truck stop petting zoo, authorities say. Oh, boy. All right. Dive into this story. A woman bit a camel's testicles at a Louisiana truck stop petting zoo. Truck stop petting zoo? I don't like this story. And was cited for criminal trespassing. The woman, of course a Florida resident, (laughs) was chasing her dog when she crawled into Casper's enclosure at the the Tiger truck stop on I-10. She told deputies she bit the 600-pound camel when he sat on her. Oh, my The woman was brought to the hospital. Deputies gave her and her husband a summonses on the trespassing charge, and for not having the dog on the leash, she should have gotten summons for other things. Just uh, threw up in my mouth a little bit. I, it's always weird to end on a note like that. That's a weird one. I really That's hope the top of top five weird ones ever. I I really hope we can get a soundbite just of you reading that headline. <laughs> I really want that to reappear later in the week. Well, anyway, n- never Woo. a dull moment here at the Common Good. We will try not to include any stories that are even remotely close to this one tomorrow or any day from four to six p.m. here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life.